So if you're ever uh, in Death Valley on a Saturday for a football game and you're walking with your best friend to uh, the gate to go into your seats in the common place where everybody else sits and he has a friend that's the head of security that says, hey, do you want field passes? You should answer yes to that question. Last night I stood on the field and watched the Clemson Tigers and Louisiana Tech play football at a, a closeness that my knees felt. And they felt it because there's nowhere for you to sit down on the sideline and because when some of them kids hit each other, I thought that their souls were going to go to Jesus. <laughs> I've never experienced anything like that in my life. It, it was crazy. So if you're ever at a major program and someone says, Phil passes, and just in case you were wondering if it's a good idea, the answer is yes, that's pastor approved. Uh, we've been studying the book of Acts together. Uh, we've been looking at a common people who were given this uncommon community and ability to testify to the work and witness of the resurrected Christ. What happened and started as a 120 uh, rocky, newish, we sort of believe believers, has grown now to around 2 billion people who on this earth profess to be followers of Christ. There's nothing short of a move of God that could take uneducated, untrained, for the most part, marginalized people who had no platform or voice in the public square to then begin proclaiming the gospel, not just publicly, but impactfully to the point that thousands begin to respond to the gospel. From Pentecost in Acts 2 to Acts chapter 6, where we'll land in a new series next week, we have five years of church history that's covered. Some of you believe that the New Testament church, their fellowship, uh, the kind of life they lived was over a few weeks or a few months, and that if you had to live the way that they lived in the book of Acts for any, for any uh, extended period of time, it wouldn't make it that long because you can't live that God-focused, that gospel-centered, that with that kind of unity, with that kind of power for very long. But they made it almost half a decade, which is longer than many of your first marriages made it. So... That's a good joke. It was just a joke. We, we laugh and then we heal. We laugh and then we heal. It's... Or we say, ouch. I don't, I don't know. But, but my, point, my point is, they were a gospel-centered, gospel-focused people. We get to Acts chapter 5, and we get this transition in church history. It's the first time that someone who was in Jesus' time at work shows back up in the early church's work. And what we see is a counterfeit faith that begins to come into the community of Christ, one that I'm very wary of today in our community. And so I've entitled this message, Counterfeiters and Community Killers. Counterfeiters and Community Killers. And this is what we see that comes out of the overflowing faith of Acts chapter 4. Let me describe it to you. Acts 4 introduces us to a heavenly glimpse of of the fellowship or koinonia, which is the Greek word, if you want to feel special and unique, that they had within the early church. You see, in the early church, they did not live a life that was free from burdens and heartache and pain, but it was a life of purpose. And in purpose, you can face heartache and pain and struggle if you know that there's a reason behind it. It's in suffering and pain when you cannot connect it to a purpose when you cannot connect it to a reason that we begin to struggle in hopelessness, that we begin to wander away from the expectation of God's intervention and God's power in our life. But what they had was a purpose-filled life. What it looked like was this. Worship was life 
in Acts 4. Everything they did was worship. When they worked, it was worshiped. When they communicated, it was worshiped. When they gathered around the table in the evening, it was worshiped. When they ate, it was worshiped. Everything was worshiped. And it brings out a greater biblical point about you and me. You see, some of you may say that you're not one of those worshipers. You're just not expressive in your worship uh, about what we just did over the last few moments. And you may like various styles of worship and different methods, and that's all great and well. But here's what you need to know about you and how God made you. God designed you for worship, to take beauty in, to take creation in, and to respond to it. And you and I right now, in every single moment and area of our life, are worshiping something. The question is not, am I worshiping? But what is it that I'm worshiping? For some of us, we worship relationships. For some of us, we worship money. For some of us, we worship our jobs. For some of us, we worship ourselves. But you, from the time you wake up to the time that you go to sleep, and even in the dreams that you dream, worship something. That was a part of your design that was created and God-given so that in seeing all that God made, you would turn and worship God and give Him glory and honor and praise as you take in the creation and the gifts and the beauty of the world that God made. You see, worship is life for you. It just may not be worship of God. And therein lies the problem. For the Acts 4 church, they were a gathering of people who worshiping God was life. Not worshiping political parties, not worshiping personal preferences, not worshiping ideologies or methodologies that they had made up and put around the man-made versions of God's move in their life. Instead, it was centered on and focused in the resurrected Christ and the good news of his gospel that had eclipsed and changed the very way they lived their life from the moment they had heard it five plus years later as we're getting closer and closer to Acts chapter 6. You see, worship was life in the early church. On top of that, the good news of the day spilled over to the dinner tables at night where believers shared stories of the ongoing work of Christ daily. They got around the table and it was almost as if they would leave the table expecting that God would move in the next day. They weren't waiting on God to show up to work, but they knew that they were a spirit-filled people. And where they went, God's work went. And as they went, they carried the presence of God into places that were dark, that needed illumination in the light. And so whenever they would get to the end of the day, they would share the stories of the day as to what God did through it in their lives. On top of that, the Holy Spirit was palpable. You didn't leave the early church hoping God showed up. You knew he had shown up. It says over and over again that as they left, they were in awe, not of the preacher, not of the music, not of the uh, aesthetic of what was going on. They were in awe of the manifest presence of God that was at work in the gathering of the people. In one prayer moment, as they gathered in prayer after Peter and John had been released from prison, they prayed not for safety, but for boldness. Do you want the Holy Spirit or do you want safety? Do you want the Holy Spirit or do you want predictability? Do you want the Holy Spirit or do you want routine? So we don't like this kind of preaching. We don't, we don't like to be told this because an old monk used to say this about the Holy Spirit. If you want to live a spirit-filled life, it is like going on a wild goose chase. Many of us think the Christian life is steps that are neatly oriented. Step one, pray the sinner's prayer. <laughs> Step two, be baptized. 
Step three, don't cuss in traffic. <laughs> step, okay. <laughs> Some of us are stuck at step three. Our love for ludicrous comes out of our soul in step three. More honest than you want it to be, in it? Mm-hmm. We listen to his radio in our car. Yeah, but you still think about those old songs in your car when you're listening to his radio. Anyway. The Holy Spirit was palpable. They lived for and by the Spirit. Peter said in Acts 4 to be filled with the Spirit as he stands to speak to the uh, Sadducees in the temple guard that were questioning them after the miracle had taken place in chapter 4. Their unity was real. It wasn't plastic. You know, people are like, we're family. Everyone throws that word around. We're all family, football team, so family, cheerleader. We're family. And then, like, they do what most dysfunctional families do, which is kind of true to the thing. They stab each other in the back. They gossip about each other. They envy each other, which is not actually what this is. What they had was not a uniformity, but a diversity that had been brought together by something greater than their cultural or ethnic differences. His name is Jesus. And last I checked, at the end of this, in Revelation chapter 7, every nation, tribe, and tongue will be gathered around the throne of God, not because they're the same, but because they are drawn by the same Savior who shed his blood to bring a diverse people into his own. Have you ever read the genealogy of Jesus? Oh, man. I'm not going to preach it for you today because that would mean you're going to you know, miss pagan football. But, um, and I would too. But my, my point is, my point, my, my point is, when Jesus bled on the cross, he bled multi-ethnic blood. To bring a multi-ethnic people together as the people of God around the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they could be filled with the Spirit of God to cross into cultural bridges that none of them individually had all access to but as a diverse community they could carry the gospel to the nations. Pentecost was multiple languages being spoke to different cultural groups. Why? Because they weren't the same. But they needed the same Savior to unite them and send them and fill them and equip them. So their unity wasn't plastic or fragile. It was in the Spirit and the gospel. The kingdom of God was being seen through bold teaching and powerful miracles. People were really being healed. And it wasn't a late night TV preacher pulling a ruse to get $29.95 out of somebody's pocket. It wasn't someone with an ulterior motive. There was no penance to be collected later. There was no promise of better behavior in the future. It was just the goodness and the love of God overflowing out of a filled people into a community that was in darkness and in need of light. Oh, what would happen today if you could get out of your man-made routine that has no margin for the move of God in it so that you could be filled to the point of overflowing by the Spirit of God so that your community would be transformed, not by you being a good doer, but by a good doing work of God going on in and through your life. The kingdom of God was being seen through the teaching and the powerful miracles of the apostles. On top of that, in the early church, their love was genuine and seen in action and not just words. They actually showed up for each other. They, pray, like, like, they didn't say, like, I'll pray for you, and then forgot about it. Like, they prayed. Like, they and they didn't stop until something changed or something happened. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and overflowing with generosity. And Acts 4 
ends with the story of a guy named Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement, who had the spiritual gift of encouragement. You couldn't leave the guy and not be a, like more encouraged and more inspired and more wanting to be like Jesus. And out of the overflow of the filling of the Spirit in his life, he has a piece of land that he sells, and he brings all the proceeds and lays it at the disciples' feet and says, feed the poor and equip the ministry that needs to be done to be done and make it happen. And now this overflowing generosity and a community of generosity begins to form, and then we hit Acts 5, and things begin to change. Look at Acts 5. But there was a certain man named Ananias, who with his wife Sapphira sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Then Peter said to Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit, and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours. Who's ready for God to move in this way today? Amen? Some of us are like, you're reading this, and you're like, I thought Old Testament was like back to the left. We're in the New Testament. Like, what's happening here? You lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not to sell as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Then some, some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, took him out, and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in. Not knowing what had happened, Peter asked her, Was this the price you and your husband received for the land? Yes, she replied, becoming a co-conspirator. That was the price. And Peter said, How could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the Spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door, and they will carry you out too. Instantly, verse 10, she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw she was dead... They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear. Duh. Can you imagine? Hey, you should go to four points. Why? Because either you're real or you die. (laughs) Want to go to church with me? No, I don't want to go to church. We were having a discussion in the office of our least favorite songs to sing. Because if God actually did what we're singing, it would not go well. Like, search my heart. And search my, nope, no, <laughs> you know, I, don't look at that or over there. Like, like, can we just look at this little part? Like, this is a Sunday Jesus part of my heart. The rest of it, that's Monday morning traffic, not Jesus part of my heart. Like, like I don't want you to search my heart, right? Uh, last week we sang, I want to be tried by, really? Yeah, I want to be tried buy pillows like comfortable like I, I don't want fire you can have some of what you desire as long as you stay out of my space i mean like like, like if worship songs got real we can make i think a few posts about that if worship songs got real how many of y'all would still be singing it i mean this is a reverentially scary text And there's a couple things that we need to note about the character of God and about the context of it to understand its application for us today. The first is this. There was no requirement for Ananias and Sapphira to do anything. See, most of us struggle with understanding grace 
But grace is the unmerited free gift of God, meaning it cannot be earned on the front end or on the back end. It is not deserved. It is never paid for. It's something that is simply received because of the sweat equity of another, and in this case, namely, Jesus. And so so you and I have been called into a grace-filled life. It's a life we don't deserve. It's filled with blessings we didn't earn. And it's not that we are now to be complacent in our faith because God's grace is sufficient for us, but it's to understand that now we rise up because of grace with a grace-filled effort that pursues Jesus out of response to Jesus, not out of obligation, not out of law, not out of fear, but because of his love and mercy and kindness that have been extended to us that draw us to want to draw near, that draw us to want to come close, that draw us to want to stay beside him. There was no requirements for Ananias and Sapphira to give anything. Peter even says so in verse 4, the money was yours. To sell or not to sell, as you wish, and after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. And that's the second thing that I want you to see about this text. You and I, while we are under grace, Grace is never opposed. I'll say this. This is a great quote by Dallas Willard. He was a great pastor, theologian. He said, grace is never opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning. It's never opposed to you rising up from the ashes of life and brokenness and sin and running hard after righteousness in Christ. But it is opposed to that moment where you look up and you begin to think, I've earned this. One of my favorite stories is about a king in the Old Testament who God allows him to flourish and he looks out over his kingdom and begins to think, I've earned this. And he loses his mind and begins to chew the cud like a cow. Some of y'all are like, "Uh, I deserve better than I'm getting. Let's talk about that a little bit. In, in some ways, yes, maybe you deserve better than other people's sinful choices impacting you, but ultimately all of us stand justly condemned before God under the law of God in need of grace that only God can give us. So I would say you're doing pretty good if you're not a follower of God for the fact that you're breathing his air still and he's not taking your life. Because it would be just for him under the law because sin condemns us to death, to give us death at the moment we first sin. But grace, grace. God's grace that continues day after day and moment after moment to allow you to take breath that he's given you and a life that he's blessed you with and use it in continued rebellion against him for a time so that in doing so you might come to see his grace and turn to him because of his kindness and mercy and instead of being rebels that run from him like everybody else in the world which isn't a rebel at all you become a real rebel and turn towards him and run at a righteous, holy God, knowing that if it's anything other than the blood of Jesus, you would be ruined in his presence. Oh, grace. Grace. God's grace. You see, they were not required to do anything. What happened in Barnabas was he was filled with the Spirit, and out of the overflow of being in relationship with the generous God, generosity began to pour out of him. When you know a generous God, you're generous to your neighbor. 
Many of us, we still are getting to know the generous God who lavishes us with grace and mercy every single morning. Therefore, we're still getting to a point of being able to be generous. We feel prompted by the Spirit to radical generosity, but we fear actually doing and following through with what we feel the Spirit leading us to do because we don't yet know that He is the Lord that owns a cattle on 10,000 hills. And if you give away cars and houses and planes and money and cash and his leadership, it proves that you're the steward and not being mastered as the slave by it. Therefore, you can be blessed by him to be a blessing to others, which is tied to an Old Testament calling that God was looking for within his people, that he could make them a people who would be identified by his presence and they would be a blessing to the world around them because unlike the rest of the world, they wouldn't close their hands around the gifts that God gives them, but they would open their hands and allow God to fill them so that they could use it for ministry in any direction God would call them to lead. Ananias and Sapphira didn't have to give anything, but they wanted to be like Barnabas and the other people that they were seeing. On top of that, here's what I want you to see at the end of verse 4. Ananias and Sapphira are morally accountable to God, not others. You see, there's going to be a time in your life where you're going to probably think, "I've, I've done it. I've pulled one over. No one knows. You're going to deceptively think, I've pulled it off. It's not a big deal. And then if you know Jesus... The Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to begin to convict you of the self-deception and the terrifying reality that God knows. If you make your bed in Sheol, he is there. If you come to the highest heights, he is there. That's Psalm 139. Where can we go from your presence or hide from your hand? Psalm uh, Psalm 33 says, when I kept silent about my sin, your hand was heavy upon me day and night. My bones wasted away. I confessed my sin to the Lord, and he was faithful and just to forgive me of all my sin and my iniquity. You see, God knows, and he doesn't immediately condemn and bring judgment on you. Instead, he extends common grace. That's not salvific grace. Common grace. Common grace. Everybody can do this. Common grace. You didn't make that molecule so that you could, okay? Like, like you didn't do that. You had nothing to do with that. Yet God let you have one of those. Hey, how many of you just told your heart to beat? Common grace. You didn't design it. You didn't make it. Like, you didn't take Legos, throw them out, and an entire human being was formed with beating. Or Like, like, like instead, a designer designed that, and he gave you the grace. Though many of you have wondered, though many of you have walked away, though many of you doubt, Though many of you have not served and worshipped God, instead you've worshipped and served creation, he's given you common grace so that you perhaps, on a day like today or in the future, would hear the gospel and come to know of the patient, long-suffering Savior that lived the life you couldn't live, died the death you should have died so that you could be given the gift that you couldn't earn. Oh, it's grace. (laughs) That's good. Hmm. You see, Ananias and Sapphira think they'll never know. We can deceive all of them. And deception is a community killer. And here's, here's the thing. Many of us are like, yeah, it's a community killer. Or we don't think it's that serious, and I'll tell you why it is serious in a second. But, but, but consider this. Um, it's not an Ananias and Sapphira problem. I would say it's an us problem. Like, and I'm not talking about like the church. I'm talking about this church. Like, we, we are really good at being deceptive, specifically today. You probably were asked about two to three times already, how are you doing? And I get it. We're culturally trained to say fine, which means 
fantastically neurotic and messed up. It's trying to be politically correct, right? But, but that's a deception because you're not. And, and, and outwardly, you may think everyone's fooled. But the problem is God sees you, knows you, and he's not. And he's not mad. He's not angry. He desires something better. He doesn't desire terrifying fear in the knowledge of his knowledge of you, but he desires immaculate, powerful, transforming grace. He knows and he's not storing it up so that he can shame you. He knows and he's not keeping it so that he can hold up condemnation over you. He knows because he desires to account it to his son's cross where the blood could cleanse and set you free. But Ananias and Sapphira think, oh, no, no one will know. Well, the problem is God knows. For some of you, you stole money from your work. No one will know. God knows. For some of you, you've cheated on your spouse. No one will know. God knows. For some of you, you've abused and neglected your kids. No one will know. God knows. And that reality should terrify you and send you running to the cross faster than anything in this world. Because <laughs> he desires mercy. But hear me out. He came as a lamb, but he returns as a lion. He came to pay for our sin, but when he comes back, he comes as Lord of lords and King of kings. You will bow either today or that day. We, we plead with you, bow now. Turn and repent now. But Ananias and Sapphira double down. We've deceived them. No one knows. No one will find out. You see, uh, Chuck Swindoll said it this way, Christians aren't morally accountable to the apostles, church leaders, or any other humans. Because, of our actions affect, because our actions affect one another, we are mutually accountable to each other. Because church leaders must act in the care of the church, they must confront unrepentant sin. But we answer directly to God for our actions. And that should drive you to the cross. I want to be very clear with you. There are going to be times where you may think you get away with it, but I want you to know that Jesus sees and knows and his invitation to you is grace not wrath freedom not condemnation if you would just simply turn to him now what was so deadly about the deception i mean they still gave the majority of the money why is it so deadly well two reasons number one imagine at pentecost acts, acts chapter two when the disciples are proclaiming the gospel in non-native languages if Ananias and Sapphira, seeing it, go, we want to do that too, and they try and do it apart from the Spirit. So they then stand up, and they begin going, okay, all right? You know what it creates? Confusion. A lack of integrity for the real thing. Questioning whenever it actually happens. What's going on in the church today? When someone gets healed, what do we naturally do? Is that really a miracle? If someone speaks in tongues, what's the first thing we do? Well, if you're Baptist, you run. <laughs> if you're charismatic, you get excited and you start doing the, the gritty. Okay? I mean, like, I, I, I don't, I, but my, my, my point is deception begins to bring a distrust in what's meant to be trustworthy. Okay? 
The second problem with deception and why it's so deadly is because if you look in the New Testament, there's a deceiver that consistently shows up after God moves, and he's not on Team Jesus. He led a heavenly rebellion with a third of the angelic host before the creation of the earth. Jesus snuffed out that rebellion really quick, flicked them to the earth. is preparing a place called hell for them, but he continues to deceive for a short period of time, counterpunching against the work of God. God speaks, Satan counters. Now, remember, the usual suspect says that the greatest lie Satan ever told is that he didn't exist. And many of you think he's just like a Halloween creature or character or not something to be taken seriously, but he will kick your behind. He is more powerful than you, more wise than you. He's a sociologist that has studied humanity since its inception and creation. And he knows where to get you, and he knows how to hook you, and he knows how to keep you under guilt and condemnation, thinking that the blood of Jesus isn't sufficient for you so that you stay in the darkness instead of walking as a child that has been redeemed in the light. That's just the air conditioner, not Satan, okay? I'll let you know if he shows up. So here's what God do. God, God speaks. He says, you can eat of any tree in the garden of the knowledge of, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day you eat it, you'll surely die. So what does Satan do? He counterpunches. He can't create, so he has to take creation and twist it. He has to take creation and crop it. So he takes a thing about creation and makes it a, the whole creation. So this one tree becomes everything when it was only a thing in the midst of a big thing. That's what sin does. So now I have to have it. It's irresistible. It has to be mine. So then what do you do? You sell your soul for it. You give your life to it. You become a tin man, no longer working to provide for a family and to honor God and to bless the people that God has given you in your life, but working just to get more. For what? You don't even know anymore. It's just more. So that you can have what? Enough. You don't even know what enough is. It's just enough. So now not only are you dishonoring God with money, you're wasting your life for something that will not matter in eternity. Can I remind you that gold is what they pave heaven with? Pavement. How many of you have been walking down the street and been like, ooh, a chunk of pavement. I was putting on a necklace. I, I... Do your chain hang low, do it wobble to and fro. Does it have asphalt? It doesn't matter. That's my point. Gosh, I, I want this for you. Second service, you are quiet, and I want you to get it. You see, deception is almost always pre-scripted and pre-planned. They had already planned it. Many of you came in here today already planning what you're going to do. I come in, I smile, I put on the face, I leave. Don't let anyone in. Here's the problem with it. In order for people to be encouraged, they have to be in a place that's honest. You can't be encouraged internally if you're not willing to be honest externally. See, by letting out my discouragement, I open myself up to the community and the work of God in it to fill me with encouragement. But deception says, sit in your seat, plop, pray, pay, leave. And then you wonder why there's no power in the house that everybody else says, oh, it was great, it was amazing. And you're like, no. You chose to keep what you came in here with. <laughs> and my goal is for you to leave what you came in here with. Leave your old life. Damn your pride. Leave it here. 
leave this self-sufficiency. Oh, I got this. No, you don't, thunder. I don't care how many people. I'll beat you up too. I don't care. I've been threatened to be beaten up by tons of people. I, I remember leading four bloods to Christ in Maryland, and, and, and like, oh, I was on their list. And I was like, well, Jesus, we may be coming home sooner. You know, I hear that you have an army. Now would be a good time. Still here. Apparently, the army worked, okay? My, this is my point, guys. Stop, stop acting like you're okay when you're not. For others of you, like, stop acting like you're not okay when you are. You know it's okay to be okay in church? Like, you can show up on good weeks and good days and be good and it really be good. Like, you know that, right? Like, someone's like, it's either you've, gotta, you've either got to be perfect or it's all falling apart. No! That's not the life experience. Life is all over the place. Sometimes I'm good in three areas and horrible in two. What's good right now? Well, my wife, that's great. Sometimes it's not. But right now, that's great. My kids, that's, uh, that's not good. We'll put that in the other, you know, like, what's great? What's good? Well, you know, like, lunch is going to be really good. It's my mother-in-law's birthday. We sprung for catering. It's going to be a good day. I've got battles and blessings in my life right now. Parallel tracks to each other, running side by side. Encouragement requires honesty. Imagine if Ananias and Sapphira decided instead of deceiving, we're going to be honest. And they came to the community and they said, hey, here's the deal. We want to be where Barnabas is at in our trust. We, we want to love and be generous like we see others in this community loving and being generous. But we're new and we're still trying to figure it out and we're struggling with, with doubts. Is there anyone in the room that struggles with doubts in that? Oh, there's a guy named Thomas. Thomas could be like, hey, I struggle with doubts. I had to see Jesus before I would actually believe Jesus. I can relate to that. Can, can you imagine if they were like, hey, we want to give at that level. We want to give in that generosity, but we just aren't there yet. So here's our best offering. We sold this land, and this is us stepping out in faith, and it's a big deal for us, and it may not be a big deal for you, because here's the deal. I, I'm not here for you to compare your faith to mine, or compare your obedience to mine, because what's obedience for me may look similar, but in details will probably be different than what's obedience for you. And we're, we're on a journey together, led by the same Savior, by the same Spirit, but we're in different places. And for some of you, you're, you're, some of you are like, I just want to be like Pastor Russ. Well, you're not me. I mean, I didn't deserve anything I've gotten. But at 19, I don't know why God grabbed me and began to use me in the way that he's used me. I don't know why he sent me and sent me through the church. I mean, how, how many of you want to, you, you, ah, there's, just, there's so much of this that's not pretty. Now, it's not been easy, and, and like I'm rooted in, in a faith not to compare to you, but to encourage you that, hey, he's faithful, and he can use like crazy, insane, barefoot, preaching people like me, which who knows what he's going to do with you, because, I mean, look, at, look, look, look where we're at. I mean, like, like, imagine what would happen. It won't be the same. Don't, don't, don't compare it. Don't. And just, just imagine that conversation, how much different Acts 5 is if, if they were just honest. How many other people would have come forward and said, you know, us too, like we want to trust, but man, we're struggling. We want, we, we want to walk in faith, but man, it's hard. And I get it in church, you know, like we have made a career out of like looking down and scouring at people and being shot by them being human, you know. This fire comes in and the second community killer, we see deception and the second community killer's lies. She lies to cover it up. And for some of you, that's what you've been doing. Like, you just continue to lie week in and week out. 
can't even keep up with the story anymore. You've got so many of them going and spinning out of control. And different versions of different people that you've got to be. Man, I never will forget, I, I, I was a radio DJ for uh, five years. Had 25,000 people listening to this morning show I did. It was stupid. Have people call into the radio to give their life to Jesus. It's the most, I never, you ever hear on Christian radio like, Christ makes the difference. And just through the music, people are coming to the Lord. And you're like, yeah, right. It happens. It happens. It's insane stuff I could tell you about that. But I stopped doing radio and thought all that was over and was preaching and leading a, a church in California. And it kept growing and it kept getting busier and life kept getting full. And then Fox News called and said, hey, every Monday... We want you on our local affiliate to just take a half hour and unpack your sermon. And I was like, what? You want me to spend 30 minutes on a political station, not talking about politics, just talking, I can just talk about my sermon. What if it doesn't agree with your stances on stuff? What if I come into something in a sermon that doesn't agree with what you, oh, we just want you to talk through your sermon, start conversation, that's it. So I did. Their reach was over half a million people. So I'd get on there, and I would unload the message. I would give calls to action. God started working. So a house assemblyman wanted to interview me on there. So I get on, not knowing what to expect. Nervous as I'll get out, not knowing what I'm going to say. But the Holy Spirit said, or Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say when you don't know what to say, because I have no clue. This is, not my, this is not my lane. And the opening question was, Pastor Russ, what's wrong with our political environment? Well, given that I'm a political science major, I've spent time with the Bush family and the Obamas. I've, no, I, before I could catch myself, this is what came out of my mouth. The problem is not that people in office are making mistakes. It's that none of them have ever actually admitted and acknowledged to making a mistake. What our political party and system is missing is the humility of owning wrongs and repenting. Until they do so, a continued distrust will exist between the people they lead and serve and the parties that they continue to back and keep. They went to commercial break and the interview was over. In Uganda, they had divided within their cultural group, many cultures, and had murdered and as a political system brought hardship that had impacted other people groups within the Ugandan culture negatively. The current Ugandan president had become a believer. And in reading the example of Jesus and what the New Testament calls us to do, he began to face the sketchy and difficult past the gap of trust that existed between him and his people and began to look to Jesus for wisdom. So he stood in front of the nation and asked for forgiveness for his party's sins. You think that nation grew? It was an amazing thing to watch. Now, some of you are like, well, it'd be great if that would happen in our system. Well, here's the problem. There's nothing of the kingdom of God that's going to happen out there until it happens in here. And a lot of you came in here to deceive and lie. 
came here because of the person you really worship. You want them to be okay and off your back, so you show up, you sit down, profess a faith that you don't believe. I, I, I just want to plead with you. Jesus has more for you. He loves you. He has made the provisions necessary to receive you. His grace is sufficient to forgive and release you. I mean, the beauty of salvation is he's not only willing to pay for what you've done, but 2 Corinthians teaches us that he made him who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of Christ, which means Jesus takes his righteousness and dresses you in it so that he not only is forgiving you, but he makes you new and delivers you from the very thing you were so that he can now call you a new creation. So you're a saint in Christ Jesus. You're a saint, saint, saints in Christ Jesus. Jesus. For some of you, the only thing standing between you and that reality is what Romans 9 teaches. If you confess with your mouth and believe that Christ Jesus was raised from the dead in your heart, then he is faithful and just to forgive you all your sins. So as we stand, we're going to do what we do every week. The prayer team is going to come forward and then we're going to take communion. Before they do it, we want to invite many of you who came in to deceive and act like you're the real deal to become the real deal to repent of your sins. We're not shocked that you've made mistakes. We're not shocked that you're human. So you're like, well, every church says that, and then I tell them what I've done. (laughs) Let me tell you what I've done. (laughs) Let me tell you where I've been. And I haven't forgotten it. Therefore, it doesn't give me room to dismiss dismiss and and demean you because of where you've been. If his grace was sufficient for a prodigal like me, it's sufficient for someone like you. So stop acting like you're so big and bad. Leave your old life in its seat and come give your life to Jesus as we stand. In Jesus' name, let's stand. If you need to give your life to the Lord, I'm here. You move as the Lord leads.